cannot continue to take pages out of Donald Trump and Stephen Miller's playbook. We need to lead with dignity and humanity, uh, Jayapal said. Your response, Skerlene. We are 100 percent in line uh, with Congresswoman Jaya Paul, and we continue to make sure that is the, at the center of everything that we do. And we call on President Biden that he stand to the ideal and the values that he promised to save the soul of America. Those policies and executive orders that are being contemplated is the, are the opposite of saving the soul of America. And we will say again, if they move forward with those only deterrence policies that, as we all mentioned and have seen, are reflecting of, of former uh, 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 President Trump and, and, and his administration and Stephen Miller, those will become the legacy of President Biden. And as we said before, history will, tr- will, 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 will really uh, uh, judge harshly those outcomes. So again, we call on President Biden to center any decisions at the U.S.-Mexico border into dignity, compassion, fairness, and human lives. So we continue to push back on those, on those ideas. We'll continue to coordinate and collaborate and say thank you to those who are standing on the right side of history. And we are asking President Biden to do the right thing and make sure that we follow uh, uh, um, uh, policies that will save lives. Amy, this past week we had a... We're going to leave it there, Erlene Joseph, but continue to cover this issue, of course, Executive Director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Community Radio during this special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and series, all brought to you by our talented programmers, including specials for Black History Month and International Women's Day. If you'd like to help KBOO reach our $22,000 goal by March 16th, Go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to the number 44321. Tune your dial to KBOO on Saturday, February 24th from noon to midnight for a very special soul and R&B marathon. Join KBOO DJs J.J. Johnson, Eugene Rashad, Chuck Barber, Celeste Carey, and PDX Biologic to honor Black History Month through music. That's KBOO's Soul and R&B Marathon from noon to midnight on Saturday, February 24th, right here on 90.7 FM. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. This month's development committee meeting will be held on Monday, February 26th at 4.30 p.m. The meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. 
Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, the biggest political donors in the state debut their plans for campaign finance reform. Organs built and daylight savings time stalls. And snow returns to the forecast starting on Sunday night. Good evening, this is the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Ezra. And I'm Josh Salem. Oregon's most influential campaign donors are unveiling their plans for state campaign finance regulation. They hope Oregon lawmakers can pass the restrictions in the next 17 days of the short legislative session. Business coalition and labor unions collaborated on the proposal, two groups that are normally on opposite sides of political issues. While they're often opposed to one another, they both like giving big money to political campaigns, and a progressive push for campaign finance reform on the ballot this November spurred them to action. Oregon is one of just five states with no limits on political contributions. Campaign finance reform has been debated for years, but lawmakers have long failed to act on the issue. The new proposal would limit how much businesses, political committees, interest groups, labor unions, and everyday Oregonians could donate to campaigns and causes starting in 2026. They say that if the limits are loose enough, the state won't see a flood of independent expenditure campaigns, where outside groups fund political ads without the knowledge of the campaign they're supporting. Preston Mann, with Oregon Business and Industry, told OPB, quote, There's something in this for everybody to hate. But at the end of the day, we are trying to come up with a system that works, end quote. Honest Elections Oregon and other good governmental groups have criticized the proposal, saying it has big loopholes, weak enforcement provisions, and lax disclosure rules. Taken together, they say it would still allow big money to flow to candidates. A bill to eliminate daylight saving time in Oregon has hit a snag. Senate Bill 1548 is a bill proposing the abolishment of switches to and from daylight saving time. It was deadlocked in the Oregon State Senate on Tuesday with a vote of 15 to 15. It barely failed to pass. Reluctantly, one senator changed her vote to vote down the bill and then requested it be charted for reconsideration. The Senate voted yes to allow it. Part of the opposition to the bill is based on the fact that Oregon would be out of sync with neighboring Pacific Standard Time states for at least half the year if it goes into effect. Permanent daylight saving time requires federal sign-off, but Senate Bill 1548 is different. It wouldn't require Oregon to wait for federal approval, and it wouldn't require the approval of neighboring states. It switches to permanent standard time instead of daylight saving time. Washington and California have both introduced similar legislation. The White House reacts to the Alabama embryo ruling. Nikki Haley clarifies her stance on IVF. State laws preserve some telemedicine abortion pill access. And a Texas judge limits Crown Act protections. With those stories and more, it's Farah Siddiqui with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. 
exactly the type of chaos that we expected when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Women are being forced to grapple with the devastating consequences of action by Republican elected officials. In the wake of Alabama's Supreme Court ruling that embryos have the rights of children, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says President Joe Biden will call on Congress to restore access to reproductive health care. Democrats have been campaigning on abortion, and Vice President Kamala Harris is blaming former President Donald Trump for recent court restrictions on it at events in the swing state of Michigan. Trump's rival Nikki Haley had a son through artificial insemination. She told NBC Tuesday that embryos are the same as babies, but then quickly changed her tone. Haley says she wants a federal abortion ban, but clarified her in vitro fertilization stance on Newsmax yesterday. Be very careful how you do this, because number one, you don't want to take those fertility treatments away from women. It is very important that women like me have the ability to have that blessing of a baby. Nevada Republican Senate candidate Sam Brown and his wife Amy appeared on NBC Wednesday. Amy Brown said she deeply regrets getting an abortion at 24, and her husband said he would not vote for a federal ban. I respect the law that the voters put in place over 30 years ago that it grants access for women up to 24 weeks. And so, no, I will, I will not vote on a federal abortion ban. Meanwhile, half a dozen blue states are acting to protect access to abortion pills through telemedicine and the mail, including for patients in other states. Drexel University professor of law David Cohen says the courts in those states would not enforce the laws in other states that make those pills illegal. So say a New York doctor mails pills to Mississippi and Mississippi tries to prosecute that doctor. New York saying, we're not going to help with that. We're not going to send that doctor to Mississippi. We're not going to have our courts force that doctor to participate in any way. On Thursday, a Texas judge ruled that the state's Crown Act doesn't apply to school district's dress codes. That's a blow to Houston High School student Daryl George, who sued his district after being suspended over his hairstyle. Throughout all these years, throughout all the all the fighting for the black history that we've that we've already done, we still have to do this again and again and again. Is is ridiculous. Meanwhile, the New York Times says state Republican parties in about half of battleground states are suffering from what is called dysfunction, debt, and disarray. The Times cites infighting and cash problems in Georgia, Arizona, and Michigan, among others. And finally, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has said he has no intention of serving as vice president. In a recorded call reported by two newspapers, he did leave open the option of another White House run. I'm Farah Siddiqui for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Oregon rideshare drivers are seeking improvements in pay and working conditions by calling on the city and state governments to better regulate app-based transportation network companies. Drivers held a rally in Portland last Wednesday morning. This was one of many driver protests and strikes around the country that day, responding to issues that have made it hard for them to make a living wage. While drivers were once guaranteed at least 80% of passenger fares, they often now receive less than half. Carrie Harwin, the communications director of the local chapter of the Drivers' Union, says that Uber and Lyft have shifted toward, quote, algorithmic pay discrimination. Harwin says Uber and Lyft are paying drivers the absolute minimum they will accept and giving them different fares for the same trip, depending on driver desperation. In addition, the competitive market, inflation, high gas prices, and the pandemic's impact on people's travel habits have affected rideshare drivers' ability to make a living. Some drivers report that their accounts on rideshare apps have been deactivated for no discernible reason, which adds to the insecurity they experience on the job. 
Regulations like those in Washington give drivers more security through guaranteed pay, sick leave, workers' compensation, and a new deactivation appeal process. Oregon rideshare drivers are looking to the local and state government to improve their working conditions. Willamette Valley weather could take a wet and potentially snowy turn this Sunday after the weekend starts out warm. Rain is expected in the valley, and snow is on the horizon for the Coast Range, Cascades, and Columbia River Gorge. Sunday night into Monday, snow levels could drop as low as 500 feet above sea level. For the Portland metro area, that could mean some accumulation in the hills, but it's less likely in the valley floor. Folks at lower elevations can expect some very cold rain at that time, however. Areas higher than 1,000 feet could see between 4 and 8 inches of snow. Western wind gusts could reach 50 miles per hour, and travel could be very difficult. The Cascades are expected to get 1 to 2 feet of snow from Sunday into Tuesday, and the coast range is expected to get 6 to 8 inches. Phone calls or texts from companies offering to buy your home or land could be con artists looking for an easy payday. As Terry D. reports, deed theft is on the rise amid a tight housing market. A scam used to illegally obtain houses and land is violently targeting more unsuspecting victims, and it often leaves people in need of legal help to regain their assets. Deed theft or property fraud is the transfer of a home or land to someone else without the true owner's permission. The scammer fills out a blank quick claim deed, has the document falsely certified, and then files the deed with the county clerk's office, which records the sale. Marion County Recorder Faith Kimbrough explains another tactic. Suppose a scammer files a bogus property deed that looks like the actual property owner transferred the ownership to someone else. The con artist could then take the deed to a bank, obtain a fraudulent mortgage, and walk away with thousands of dollars. The thief usually has an unsuspecting buyer lined up, rents the home, or gets a home equity line of credit. Offers to help with refinancing or pay overdue taxes are other ways crooks operate. The FBI's 2022 Internet Crime Report claims nearly 12,000 individuals in the U.S. racked up real estate losses of $350 million due to fraud. Too often, an owner does not realize their property has been stolen until it is too late. Upon discovery, Kimbrough says victims should contact her office immediately to review recently filed documents and hire an attorney. As a precaution, she advises all homeowners to sign up for a free service that will immediately call, email, or text a property owner when any filing has been submitted in their name. We currently provide uh, what we call the property fraud alert. We cannot prevent it from happening. We will alert you to let you know that's happened, and then you can call us and you can, you know, verify it. AARP cautions homeowners to always review tax, banking, and other home-related documents that happen to be sent to another name but at your address. This could be a sign that an illegal transfer has occurred. When in doubt, the organization suggests consulting a lawyer before signing anything and never signing documents under pressure. This is Terry D. for Indiana News Service. The Portland Trailblazers in the city of Portland have reached an agreement to extend the team's lease at the Moda Center for at least five years. The lease was set to expire in October of 2025, but if the city council votes to approve the deal next week, the Blazers will stay in the city until at least 2030. There's also an option to extend it to 2035. The Trailblazers have played at the Moda Center since 1995. The agreement is seen as a bridge deal where both sides will continue negotiating until another agreement is reached. 
It's welcome news for Blazers fans who had some fear of the team being shopped around to other cities, much like how Seattle lost to Supersonics. Both sides say they need more time to negotiate a long-term lease and a plan for developing the area around the stadium. Remodeling the Moda Center is also in play. It's the oldest NBA arena to never undergo major renovation. The term sheet will be voted on by the Portland City Council next week. You're listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Counterspin, your look behind the headlines with fairness and accuracy in reporting. At 6, it's a KBU Love Your Pet Week special, then at 7, Civic Cipher. Tonight's weather will be cloudy with a low of 39 degrees. Tomorrow's weather, there's a high of 53 and a low of 42. No rain in the forecast. Today in history, in 1927, President Calvin Coolidge signs a law establishing the Federal Radio Commission to regulate the use of radio frequencies in the U.S. This was later replaced by the Federal Communications Commission. The quote of the day is from American historian, sociologist, and Pan-African civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who was born this day in 1868. He said, quote, There is always a certain glamour about the idea of a nation rising up to crush an evil simply because it is wrong. Unfortunately, this can seldom be realized in real life, for the very existence of the evil usually argues a moral weakness in the very place where extraordinary moral strength is called for. An Anchorage jury deliberated for just over an hour in the trial of Brian Smith, who was accused of killing two Alaska Native women. They convicted him on all 14 counts. With that story and more, it's Antonia Gonzalez with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In just a little over an hour Thursday, an Anchorage jury reached a guilty verdict in the trial of Brian Smith, accused of killing two Alaska Native women. They convicted Smith on all 14 counts in the deaths of Kathleen Jo Henry and Veronica Abouchuk. During the three-week trial, police and prosecutors showed how Smith preyed upon their vulnerabilities. They struggled with homelessness. In the final moments of the trial, the prosecution recapped scenes from videos and photos stored on an SD card which showed Henry being tortured. Police said someone found the card on the ground with the voice of a man in the footage with a thick South African accent, which police connected to Smith, who was under investigation in a different case. Debate over the memory card was a source of contention, as well as the credibility of Valerie Kassler, the woman who gave it to police. During her testimony, she changed her story and said the footage actually came from a cell phone she stole from Smith's truck and copied to the SD card. Smith's attorney, Timothy Ayer, argued in closing statements that Kassler's testimony alone was enough to give the jury reasonable doubt. Whether she wanted the limelight, whether she wanted to hide something, whether she simply doesn't have a good memory... She is a very comfortable and constant liar, and there is reasonable doubt there. But the co-counsel for the prosecution, Heather Nabriga, asked the jury to consider the totality of the evidence, which also included cell phone data, text messages, and surveillance footage. What we do know is the defendant violently and brutally murdered two women. That is why we're here today. That is why the state is asking you to convict Mr. Smith of the crimes charged and that the state has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Smith sat stone-faced as the verdict was read, while families and advocates for the victims cried and embraced each other. They said they hoped their presence would send a message of strength and caring, but most importantly of all, 
to bring justice. In Modoc County, Northern California, Jarrett Rucker, a non-native man, is on trial, accused of the killing of Pitt River tribal member Milton Patrick McGarva, who was found stabbed to death in his home in 2020. Rucker is charged with first-degree murder. As Frank Sterling reports, advocates for missing and murdered indigenous people say this is an important case. The trial began with prosecutor Barton Bowers revealing that Milton McGarva, Yogi as he was known, and Jarrett Rutger were in a romantic relationship and had been living together in McGarva's rural home for approximately two years before Yogi was killed. Bowers also described the scene of the killing as brutal. Numerous witnesses were called, including first responders and McGarva's family. His family painfully recalled the tragedy, saying McGarva had just pulled through some serious health challenges Russell Margava is one of Yogi's brothers. He had 13 different surgeries, and um, he made it through it. You know, and to, to be taken the way he was from us, it's just not right. Geraldine Margava, Yogi's sister, says he was a community-oriented man and loved to help out. Fun-loving guy that made everybody laugh when he was around. We all laughed and joked and kidded with each other. He helped everybody out. Advocate Morningstar Gali of the organization Indigenous Justice says this is an important case for Native people. There has actually been charges put forward um, in terms of a non-Native individual against a tribal member is something that's unheard of out here and something that's really significant in our seek for for justice for the families and for all cases. These cases, uh, the majority of them never actually make it to this point that go to trial. The trial is expected to wrap up next week with the testimony of the medical examiner and closing arguments by the attorneys before the case is turned over to the jury. That was Frank Sterling and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Saturday is the two-year anniversary of the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and rallies are planned across the state in solidarity with Ukrainians. Suzanne Potter has more in California. Pro-Ukraine rallies are planned in cities across the U.S., including Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Francisco this weekend, marking the second anniversary of the Russian invasion. Advocates are pressing the Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, to relent and allow a vote on aid to Ukraine. Alex Cornell Duhu is a former Maine state representative, now president of Elected Officials to Protect America, a nonprofit that fights climate change. It's extremely unfortunate and self-serving of the speaker and members to hold Ukraine international aid hostage as a political tool. If they truly cared about democracy and protecting our planet, they would be passing aid for Ukraine. Johnson says he's holding up the $61 billion weapons aid package because it doesn't address security on the U.S. border. However, he rejected just such a deal in recent weeks. Pro-Ukraine advocates argue that Russian dictator Vladimir Putin will threaten other democracies if this invasion succeeds. Ukrainian-American Igor Tregub is a former city official in Berkeley and a member of elected officials to protect America. He says the world can weaken Russia by refusing to buy its oil and gas. It is our moral obligation to ensure that authoritarian, despotic states like Russia become failed petro-states. The way to do that is to divest from life-destroying fossil fuels and invest in sources of renewable energy. EOPA is calling for a so-called Energy Security Marshall Plan that would help Ukraine rebuild its economy with clean energy technologies. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. 
A U.S.-based spacecraft has landed on the moon, the first of its kind to do so in over 50 years. Intuitive Machine's IM-1 lander, also called Odysseus or Odi, made it safely despite experiencing unexpected issues hours prior to the landing. Intuitive Machine CEO Steve Altimus announced on a live webcast, quote, I know this was a nail-biter, but we are on the surface, and we are transmitting. Welcome to the moon, end quote. Odysseus is the first commercial spacecraft to make a controlled landing on the moon. It's also the first U.S.-made vehicle to do so since the Apollo program ended more than five decades ago. Recently, there has been renewed international interest in the moon. Since the end of the Soviet-U.S. space race, China, India, and Japan have all landed lunar spacecraft. Intuitive Machines wanted to land Odysseus near Malapert A, an impact crater close to the moon's south pole. The South Pole is of great international interest because it's suspected to be home to large stores of ice, which could be converted to drinking water or even rocket fuel for future missions. NASA is Intuitive Machines' primary customer, and they want to do some scouting using robotic explorers developed by private contractors before sending astronauts to the moon later this decade. Odysseus is expected to operate for up to seven days before the landing site is plunged into lunar night, with freezing temperatures then making the vehicle inoperable. The U.S. appears particularly anxious to regain a presence on the moon. NASA is targeting 2026 for the first crewed mission back to the lunar surface. One in five OBGYNs in Idaho have left the state since Roe v. Wade was overturned in 2022. That's according to a study by the Idaho Physician Wellbeing Action Collaborative. OBGYNs are doctors of obstetrics and gynecology. They specialize in pregnancy, childbirth, and the female reproductive system. They found that half of Idaho's 44 counties don't have practicing obstetricians. Under Idaho code, doctors who perform abortions that are not within the strict limitations outlined by the state risk losing their licenses and five years in prison. Doctors say the restrictions are confusing, making them difficult to comply with. Caitlin Gustafson is a Valley County family care obstetrician. She told Boise State Public Radio, quote, What we're seeing in this report and with this exodus of providers is that now Idaho is a state that criminalizes physicians and the chilling effect is real, end quote. The report also shows that Idaho ranks low in maternal pregnancy outcomes, the 10th percentile. That means that 90% of the U.S. has better outcomes for pregnancy than Idaho does. Two Idaho hospital obstetrics programs closed since 2022. Now there are only about 200 providers for some 900,000 Idaho women. A decision by Oregon officials will give added protections to orcas in the Northwest. Eric Tegetoff has more. The Oregon Fish and Wildlife Commission has decided to list southern resident orcas as endangered species. With it comes guidelines for how the decision will protect these whales. There are only about 74 animals left in this population of West Coast whales. Ben Intignap is Pacific Project Manager and a senior scientist with Oceana. He says ensuring the orcas have enough salmon to eat is the main barrier, and the federal government, Washington State, tribes, and the public sector were working on this prior to Oregon's listing decision. What this does is really prioritize Oregon's work on this issue of recovering salmon and adds another layer of understanding and reason for why we need to be doing this now and doing it more urgently than is already being done. Intignap says listing by Oregon could help the state get more resources from the federal government for salmon recovery. Southern resident orcas already are listed as endangered federally and by Washington state. The endangered listing in Oregon comes with guidelines for how to recover the species. 
That includes addressing pollutants, increasing boaters' knowledge about federal vessel buffers to decrease noise disturbance, and enhancing hatchery Chinook salmon production if possible. Intignap says the orcas feed on Chinook in the mouth of the Columbia River in the winter and spring. To really have a long-term sustainable fix, we need to be investing in wild salmon recovery, and that means doing things like river restoration, dam removal, sustainable harvest limits, and things like that that can help these Chinook salmon populations recover. Intignap says dam removal on Columbia River tributaries could help the fish. He also notes that warmer waters and lower snowpack from climate change are increasingly impacting salmon populations, which is also hurting southern resident orcas. For Oregon News Service, I'm Eric Tegedoff. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Young people are pushing for a Green New Deal for schools across the U.S. Student activism at one school district in Colorado led to a requirement that climate change be included in the curriculum and that the district implement clean energy initiatives. Dr. Anthony Lysowitz has more on the story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lysowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Many young people want their schools to help prepare them to face the climate crisis. So students in the Sunrise Movement have been lobbying their local school boards across the country to pass a Green New Deal for schools. In the Boulder Valley School District in Colorado, they recently celebrated a win. Student activist Tilly Testa says the new resolution requires the district to implement clean energy initiatives, include climate change in the curriculum, and create disaster plans. We want students to have climate disaster plans, so when a climate disaster strikes, like the Marshall or NCAR fire that recently evacuated our community, students feel prepared and safe and know what to do. To push for the resolution, students went to school board meetings and helped draft the language. Fellow organizer Ryland Newman says that when the board voted last November, around 60 people showed up in support. And it was really powerful to see that many students and parents and even some teachers showing up in support of this resolution on that day. And it really showed how powerful we are as young people to make change in our communities. Testa says students in schools nationwide are organizing to pass their own versions of a Green New Deal. So it's really exciting to see how this one win is going to move throughout the United States. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Friday, February 23rd, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Matea Carlin, myself, Josh Salem, and my co-anchor, Ezra. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Ray Bodwell. Special thanks to Terry D., Farah Siddiqui, Suzanne Potter, Antonia Gonzalez, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of the Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available at our website at kboo.fm slash eveningnews. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Josh Salem. And I'm Ezra. All of our KBU programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members. If you'd like to become a member and support our programming, you can go to kboo.fm give or text KBU to 44321. Stay tuned now for Counterspin.